Hello from AEI in Washington, D.C., and welcome to the Campus Exchange Podcast. I'm Jeff Pickering, Director of Academic Programs here at AEI, and I hope you're enjoying this new season of the show where we are connecting college and university students with AEI scholars and end each episode with the same big life question, asking our scholars what they know now that they wish they knew when they were in college. Today, I'm thrilled to bring you a conversation between AEI's Yuval Levin and Executive Council student Johnny Gartner on institutions and American life and other themes from Yuval's books, A Fractured Republic and A Time to Build. But before I turn it over to Johnny, I want to let you know that the application for AEI's 2023 Summer Honors Program is live. You can apply today, right now even. In fact, pause this podcast if you're interested in applying and apply today. The Summer Honors Program takes place each June and offers students the opportunity to come to Washington, D.C. for a week of seminar discussions with our nation's leading scholars, and it's all expenses paid. And if this episode is of particular interest to you, you'd probably like to know that Yuval is once again returning in 2023 as an AEI Summer Honors Program instructor, and his class is titled Freedom, Progress, and Tradition. It's probably the simplest title of all of our courses this summer. So in addition to diving into topics like the changing nature of warfare, promise of American pluralism, and the morality of capitalism, students attending Summer Honors Program will get to meet and engage with other students from across the country and ideological spectrum. To learn more and to apply to the AEI Summer Honors Program, just click the link in our show notes. And to stay most up to date with all of our work here at AEI, consider joining our year-round Executive Council program. You can follow us at AEI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and be sure to hit the subscribe button on your podcast player so you never miss an episode of the Campus Exchange. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you, Jeff. My name is Johnny, and I'm a senior at Cedarville University studying political science. Today, I'm grateful to be speaking with Dr. Yuval Levin, who serves as Director of Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, where he holds the Beth and Ravenel Curry Chair in Public Policy. His work at AEI focuses on the foundations of self-government and the future of law, regulation, and constitutionalism. He also focuses on the state of American social, political, and civil life, drawing on a career serving in the White House domestic policy staff under President George W. Bush, and experiences at various levels of Congress. Most recently, he is the author of A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream. He holds a PhD and MA from the Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago, and a BA in Political Science from American University. Dr. Levin, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, so we're just going to jump right into some questions I have here. So in your recent book, A Time to Build, which we just mentioned, you talk about the need for reinvesting in the institutions that built America, including the family and the community. Uh, but you've written the most about Congress, which makes sense given your experience in Congress, working with Congress, working around Congress. So I'd kind of like to talk with you a little bit about Congress as an institution. In the book you wrote, um, our culture has responded to these disappointments, uh, which you said were the failure of those whom we count on. Uh, with understandable anger and resentment, you said the populism of the moment we find ourselves in politics is fundamentally antimonian, distrustful of authority, and cynical about all claims to integrity. 
fundamentally, and, and you do address this in the book, how do we rebuild the trust in American institutions like Congress? Well, you know, the, the loss in an institution like Congress has to do, above all, with a loss of the sense that it can do two kinds of things. One has to do with competence. That is, is Congress doing its job uh, for the American people? Is it addressing core public problems? Another has to do with something more like responsibility. Is Congress accountable to some idea of the public interest? Is it accountable to voter desires? Is it accountable to the people that it's meant to answer to in our system? And I think these two are very, very closely connected so that part of what's happened in Congress is a kind of degradation of the institution's character that has affected both its competence and its responsibility. And in both ways, I think you can look at the ways in which members of Congress now think differently about their roles so that rather than have their ambition be channeled through the institution and understand themselves as succeeding when they function as legislators, as failing when they don't function as legislators, a lot of members tend to see Congress instead as a platform for themselves, as a way to elevate their public profile, to build their personal brand to build a bigger following on social media or on cable news or talk radio. And so when they ask themselves, am I succeeding or failing? They're not really asking a question about whether Congress is succeeding or failing, but whether they as individuals are able to be prominent uh, using Congress in, in essence as a kind of platform. To restore public trust in the institution, I think what you first have to work on is restoring the sense that members have of what the institution's purpose and therefore what their own purpose is. Uh, and by allowing them to channel their ambition to succeed through the work of the institution, to think I succeed when Congress succeeds, they're more likely to operate in a way that builds public trust in the capacity of the institution to be responsive and responsible. They're also more likely to do the work of legislating. And I think you're finding in both parties now that a lot of younger members don't think about success in terms of legislating. And so it can't be surprising to us that the public, when it looks at Congress, doesn't see an institution that's really functional. Mm. I'm curious what your thoughts are. Uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi and Stanley Hoyer just announced, uh, you know, they're stepping down from leadership. We're not seeing that kind of movement in the Senate with Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell. So kind of how do you think this aging leadership in Congress kind of goes along with that uh, movement like you were talking about? Yeah, aging leadership is definitely a challenge for us now in a lot of our political institutions. You know, our president is 80. His predecessor uh, was in his mid-70s and is thinking about running again. Uh, I guess he is running again. <laughs> the, uh, as you say, the, the, the outgoing speaker, Nancy Pelosi, uh, is 82. Uh, Mitch McConnell is 81, the Republican leader in the Senate. I do think that we're witnessing the beginnings, though, of a generational transition in, in, in the House so that the next, the next Republican leadership will be significantly younger. Kevin McCarthy's in his 50s. The, the next Democratic leadership also will be more like the usual ages of our political leaders. Uh, having leaders in their 70s and 80s is very unusual and is certainly not how our system normally works. And I do think that it's possible that the kind of generational transition we're seeing will enable some reforms to happen, will help members think about their roles in terms that allow them to ask some basic questions about the purpose of the institution. But when you look at Congress, 
the the problem is actually focused at the moment among younger members, not older members. That is, the tendency to see the institution as a platform for personal prominence is much greater among younger members who have never really seen Congress function in a traditional way, have only known it in the last 10, 15, 20 years when it has been fairly dysfunctional. And it's actually older members like Mitch McConnell who are the institutionalists, who have a sense that that, that Congress exists to advance a certain kind of public work. And so I think it's, a, it's an, an open question about what generational transition will mean. There are certainly a lot of members who are dissatisfied with how Congress is functioning and who are looking for ways to improve it and who may well be open to thinking more institutionally. But a lot of the problems they'd have to overcome are embodied by their fellow younger members, uh, even more than by the aging leadership that's gradually uh, giving way. Mm-hmm. So kind of in line with the questioning about the the age of members, uh, in December of 2021, you and several colleagues at AEI released a a report called The Case for Enlarging the House of Representatives. So in your mind, how does maybe that aspect of reforming the institution of Congress go along with um, getting members in Congress who are institutionalists, not just performative? Yeah, that's really, that's one way of thinking about taking on the problem through institutional reform, right? If you think that the challenge that the institution faces is that the members now confront incentives for misbehavior, incentives for thinking of themselves uh, as the point and for thinking of Congress as a platform for personal prominence, um, some of what you'd have to do is change the incentives they face. And that requires changing the structure of how Congress works, the budget process, the committee system, maybe the electoral system, some kind of boring political science changes that have to happen in order for members to think differently about what their role is and what they're doing. Um, Expanding the House of Representatives is one way to think about how to open up a phase of reform in Congress. It's not a a self-evident intuitive reform. People look at the House now, they don't naturally think, well, it'd be great if there were more of these people. Um, Congress, as I say, is dysfunctional. Uh, its members are the reason. And to say that there ought to be more members uh, doesn't come naturally. But there are a number of reasons for thinking so. And above all, the House is meant to be representative of the American people. And that means that members have to have some connection to the constituents they serve. When the U.S. Congress was created in in the Constitution, um, the first Congress, which uh, began its work in 1789, Uh, each member of the House represented about 35,000 people. At this point today, each member represents roughly 800,000 people. Uh, That's a very different model of representation. It's a very different way to think about connection to your constituents. Now, you can't get back to a place where each member represents 30,000 people. You'd need a a House that has, you know, 9,000 members. That's not going to happen, and we don't want it to because the Congress does have to remain, the House in particular, a face-to-face institution where members can deal with each other, can negotiate and bargain and work together. But there has to be some balance between representation uh, and, uh, and, and that kind of face-to-face institution. In the course of the 19th century, the House de- tried to seek that balance through a kind of formula that said that after each census, as there's a new picture of the American population, the House would, would be reformed in a way that allowed membership to reflect population, as is required by the Constitution, but without any state ever losing a seat. And that means that the House grew gradually, incrementally in the course of the 19th century. Every 10 years after the census, there'd be some growth, about 25 members on average would be added to the House. 
Um, and in that way, it grew gradually to its current size of 435 members. In 1910, the House decided to stop growing, and it's up to the it's up to Congress. You can you can do this by law. And so, um, since then, after every census, there's been a reapportionment. The same number of members is divided up among the states based on how population changed. And that's meant that after each census, some states lose seats, some states gain seats, and the House remains the same size, so that as the population grows, members represent more and more and more people. What I've proposed and what a a group of AI scholars that I worked with proposed was that we return essentially to the formula of the 19th century, that we do it all at once to begin with. That is, we grow the House by about 150 members because that's how much bigger it would have been had, had it not stopped growing in 1910. Um, and so we sort of get back to where we would have been had we kept the formula, and then we apply it every 10 years so that it grows by 10, 15, 20 members after each census. Um, I think of this as constitutional maintenance. I think there's no question that the, f- the framers of the Constitution intended the House to grow after each census. That's the purpose of the census. It's not written in the Constitution, and so the Congress just stopped doing it. But I think we have to pick it up and continue to do it. I also think that it would help in a number of ways, that it would help to have more fine-grained representation in the House so that you'd, the, the differences within our population would be better reflected, and you'd have some greater diversity within each party coalition. More conservative Democrats, more liberal Republicans – would mean more bargaining and negotiating across party lines, which would be very important. And it would also be a kind of shot in the arm to Congress to say, things can change. If you have 150 new new members all of a sudden, you also have to think about the committee system. You have to think about the budget process. You have to think about all kinds of other things that ought to be changing for Congress to function better. And I think Congress now needs that kind of push to get itself into a reforming mindset because a lot of members are stuck thinking the way things work now is the only way they can. And it's not true. A lot of the problems they confront, a lot of the things that make them unhappy about their jobs are really up to them and they should think about how to change them. Yeah, you mentioned earlier that you said a lot of young people haven't seen Congress uh, you know, function properly. And uh, this is the Campus Exchange podcast, so there's a lot of college students obviously listening to that. And you address college as an institution in your book and how colleges have kind of failed over the last several decades to really educate young adults moving through those institutions. So what would you say is the biggest contributor to failure that has prevented young people from seeing institutions like Congress and many other institutions across the country function properly? Well, I think a lot of what's happened in a variety of institutions is, as I've described in relation to Congress, people within them starting to think of them as platforms for personal prominence rather than being shaped by the institution, letting it work on you as a kind of mold that gives you a particular shape in the world, that turns you into a college student or a professor, that turns you into a member of Congress or a professional of any kind, a lawyer, an accountant, in a way, the way we become that human type has to do with the ways in which institutions shape us. But increasingly, you find people within our institutions, and especially people who lead our institutions, thinking of them instead as platforms for themselves, as just another place to stand and yell and participate in the culture war. Um, And that has very much happened in the university, so that rather than seeing the university as fundamentally existing to advance the pursuit of knowledge, to equip people with the skills they need for our economy, 
to pursue the, the true and the good and the beautiful through teaching and learning, uh, we've come to think of the university as another place to stand and yell about oppression. Um, and we think of a lot of our institutions now as just another place to stand and yell about oppression, to participate in the culture war. Um, when you think of the university in that way, not only are you creating a particularly uh, powerful and dangerous platform for culture war combat, you're also making it hard for the university to do its job, which is ultimately teaching and learning. Um, and so there's certainly room for some kinds of activism and political action on campus, but it has to happen in the mode of teaching and learning. And when instead it happens in ways that make teaching and learning more difficult, when it happens in ways that close off avenues of debate and conversation, that put certain views off the table, that make it much more difficult to have free inquiry, free expression, free debate, and therefore the pursuit of knowledge, then the university begins to lose its purpose, to lose its character, and to become just another arena for culture war combat. I think to, to restore the capacity of the university to gain the trust of the larger society, it has to be a venue for teaching and learning above all. And right now that's under threat, and that's really what needs to be fought for. What advice do you have for college students who are at campuses like that to fight for those values? Because obviously, you know, they can't go into a classroom and start reapplying those values. But how, how would you say students could advocate for that? Well, I think you have to think of it in terms of fighting for the university, not fighting against the university. Mm-hmm. So that in your in your criticism, in your in your political action on campus. You should call the institution to its best self, to its commitments to free inquiry, to open debate, to the pursuit of knowledge. Don't treat it as enemy territory. Treat it as an institution that is failing to do what it ought to be doing. And therefore, speak to it in its own language and in terms of what you as a student want out of uh, college education and out of the university experience. Because that's also what a lot of people on campus even administrators and professors who you might be in tension with, would like to believe they're doing. And the best way to get them to do that is to show them and to, in some respects, shame them into seeing that they're failing to do it, that they're failing to be academics. Now, look, obviously, some of them know what they're doing, right? They're, they're engaged in a political effort. And ultimately, that kind, of, uh, that kind of effort means that a lot of students who are resisting that are, are in a mode of combat. They're fighting for the freedom they need as students to, uh, to actually learn on campus. And that fight has to happen. We cannot run away from that fight. But it has to be seen as a fight for the academy properly understood and not a fight against the university as an institution or society. I think just having that mindset about it can help students be more effective more constructive in how they engage in these fights. And I think it's very important to do it. Yeah. You talked about the, you know, the original purpose of what academia is supposed to be. And uh, I think it was Tip O'Neill who said all politics is local. So how, how do we as students preparing to go into the college classroom, preparing to graduate and go out into the workforce, how do we prepare to kind of make these positive influences on institutions, not necessarily just in you know the national institutions of Congress, but in our local general assemblies or in our local city council, or even yeah. in your, your local school or your local church? It's a great question. And I, I think that's where everything has to begin. Ultimately, our country functions from the bottom up and not from the top down. And when we ask ourselves how things could change for the better, we shouldn't just be talking about other people. We should be talking about ourselves. How can we advance change that could make things better? I think the way to begin 
is to try to channel your, your ambition through the institutions that you care about. Maybe that's your workplace, maybe that's church, maybe that's your kid's school, maybe that's a community institution. And in thinking about those institutions, the places where you yourself have a role, ask yourself a basic question. The question is, given my role here, how should I behave? How should I make the decision in front of me? How should I act? How should I treat other people? Given the role that I have, not only given who I want to be or how I want to be seen or what I want to achieve, but given the role that I have as a student or a teacher, as an employee or an employer, as a parent, as a neighbor, uh, as a professional, given that role, how should I behave here? And so in a sense, you're asking, what's demanded of me? And that's a way to help yourself behave in ways that strengthen the institutions that you think are essential. It's also ultimately something you should demand of other people. You should understand that some of the failures that you see around you are failures of people who should be asking that question to ask that question. So often we find ourselves in American life looking at a collapsing institution and asking ourselves, how could they have done that? right? He, he's a lawyer. How could he have behaved that way? He's a priest. How could he have done that? That kind of question is a question about institutional failure. And I think it's very important for us in judging the institutions around us and in deciding how we ourselves ought to behave to ask that question that begins from the premise that institutions give us roles and responsibilities and that we should judge people with power in our society, but also one another and ourselves based on how we're living up to those roles. That's a small way to begin, right? It's not a substitute for institutional changes. It's not a substitute for reform. It's not a substitute for starting new institutions, new ways of solving problems in our communities. But I think it's an essential prerequisite for doing all of that because for it to work and for our institutions to function and flourish, we really do have to be capable of letting them define our place in them and in the larger society. And so we have to ask, given the role that I've got here, how should I be behaving? Yeah. Uh, you mentioned, you know, it shouldn't be a substitute for starting new institutions, but a lot about your book is recommitting to the institutions we do have. And I think, especially in the current moment, there is kind of this movement towards, you know, just abandoning the institutions that we do have. So what is the value, uh, you know, as a general argument for the thesis of the book to recommitting to the institutions? And how do you see that helping America flourish again? Yeah. So look, I'm a conservative, which means that I think that it's harder to start new things than it is to sustain old ones. And that's in a sense a statement about human limitations and human nature. I think that we should never underestimate how difficult it would be to recreate from scratch the kinds of, of functional institutions we have in our society. We can't just throw away the university or the constitutional system and think that we could build a better one. Because those were built over many, many generations of trial and error uh, and of people at least as smart as we are dealing with problems at least as large as the ones we have. And so we've got to begin from some recognition that our inheritance is worth something and it's worth our effort to preserve what's good about it, even as it's also worth our effort to improve what's broken and what's bad about it. Um, there are certainly ways in which our institutions need to change. There are also times when we do need to start new institutions, when we do have to say, look, this isn't working and we're going to try something different. But even then, we have to try to learn the lessons of our experience and our society's experience and not imagine that the simple fact that something is new is, uh, is a statement in its favor. Frankly, oftentimes it's a statement against it. 
Um, and we have to ask ourselves, how do we avoid making the same mistakes that prior generations have made, that other institutions have made? That's often much easier to do within the framework of an existing institution. And so if it's not so broken that it can't be repaired, the work of repair is at least as important as the work of uh, new construction. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Levin, thank you so much for coming on today. We ask all our guests on the Campus Exchange the same last question. So the final question for you today is, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were a student in college? Well, there's so many things. Um, I, I, I guess I'd say one broad lesson that I took some time to learn in working in and around politics in particular is that cynicism is misguided. Um, I think a lot of younger people think that cynicism is sophisticated, that, you know, the, the adult world, or maybe if you're interested in politics, the political world answers to some set of secret motives that we have to uncover. And the most sophisticated understanding of the world is the one that sees people's real motives and not the ones they claim. I've learned over time that that's just not right. That's not the correct way to understand the challenge of being an adult in a free society. Um, or of being involved in politics. Our politics is really human beings all the way down, and they all believe they're doing the right thing for the country. That's often the hardest thing to accept and understand, but just about nobody gets out of bed in the morning to do harm to other people. Everybody thinks they're doing the right thing, so that in trying to understand people you disagree with and trying to persuade people who don't agree with you yet, you've got to start from the premise that what you don't like in our politics is motivated by the same basic intentions as what you do like. And we have to argue with people based on the premise that they want to do good and believe they are doing good. It's a kind of earnestness that's really hard to accept. It seems like it might be naive, but I actually have come to think that cynicism is naive and that that's a lesson you learn over time. Uh, well, Dr. Levin, thank you so much for coming on today. We really appreciate it. This is a continuing conversation that is explored more in depth in your own book. So I encourage people to go get a copy of that book to continue reading more to what you have to say about it. But thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Our vision for equipping and developing student leaders to renew healthy civic engagement on their campuses is rooted in AEI's history and mission. The American Enterprise Institute was established in 1938 and continues today as a community of scholars and supporters dedicated to defending human dignity, expanding human potential, and building a freer and safer world. The work of our scholars and staff advances ideas rooted in our belief in democracy, free enterprise, American strength and global leadership, solidarity with those at the periphery of our society, and a pluralistic entrepreneurial culture. If you want to join us in this effort, visit AEI.org or check out the link in our show notes and be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay informed of our events and opportunities for students. See you next time.